back. Hey, Brett. How's it going this week? Good, Ange. How are you? Good. Well, that means it's another episode of Money in the Bank, the podcast where we talk about all things related to personal finance. And, Brett, I think you've been studying a little bit, right? So you should do pretty well in your trivia question. I never study, so no. <laughs> <laughs> what percentage of millennials bought a home and then had buyer's remorse? All of them. Easy. <laughs> Not all. No. Some some people did it right. Um, I'd say, I don't know, just from just anecdotally from people that I've talked to, many of them, if not the vast majority, have some issue or another after they've moved in their house for like the first year or two. So you're staying at 100%. Uh, I'll say like, let's say like 93%. 68%. Yep, I was right. All right. So I think, you know, and again, this is all millennials. So they might have surveyed. I think we have to remember now that, you know, as a millennial myself, I have to remember that people in their like early 20s are no longer millennials, right? That's like Gen Z. So some millennials are approaching 40 at this point. So like at that point, they might be on their second or third house. And if they were surveyed, you know, you hopefully learn and grow (laughs) as you make purchases. So if you're on your second or third home purchase, you know, it it might be easier to not have the same regrets. And that's that's of people that did buy a house, not the people that are just renting. Right. So a lot of millennials are still not buying houses because, you know, we're burdened with student loan debt and we have a lot of problems and all sorts of things. So we um, like to live in a big city and buying a house there is not affordable when you're 24 and don't really have. Yeah. Well, especially when you're in your early 20s, it's really hard. And I think as millennials are pushing, you know, well into our 30s now, it is becoming a reality that more of us are buying homes for the first time. I know personally, I've had a lot of friends in the last year start really considering buying their first house or did buy their first house where, you know, I bought my first house when I was 23, but I was definitely the only, well, I shouldn't say the only one. Um, I have several college friends who also bought houses at a young age, but outside of that, like, it was kind of a weird thing. We were sure the youngest in our neighborhoods by a couple decades. Right, yeah, to own a home. absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it definitely wasn't as common where I feel like now that a lot of my friends, you know, we're kind of approaching our 30s or in our 30s, it seems like a lot more of us are settling down and, and looking to buy homes in the near future if we haven't already. But I agree with you. I know we regretted several of our home purchases in the past. And yeah, we're at, so yeah, we've we've bought we've lived in together. We have lived in five places and two of those were homes, right? We have only lived in four, four, places, four places and together. two of the, two of those were houses. I know it seemed like I lived in your Chicago apartment <laughs> because it was way nicer than mine and you were gone Monday through Thursday, but I did have my own glorified storage unit just down the street, That's you know. That's true. Um, so yeah, I I think this is a good topic for us to talk about because we have a lot of experience of our own as well as experience from people we know. And I I agree with this statistic. And so I guess first off the bat, I think that a lot of millennials buy houses because it's what you think you're supposed to do. And you don't crunch the numbers and you don't look at how much it actually costs. And then you're not in an area. And so I think, you know, another 
stumbling block is you might buy a place when you're single and then you get in a relationship and then, you know, a year or two later, you're like, oh, this isn't where I want to be. And so a big problem with millennials is we're not thinking long term about our home purchases. And if you're not going to stay somewhere for five years, it is a poor decision to buy a house. Right. Do as we say, not as we do. Absolutely. (laughs) We are... So, but, I, you know, and it's hard because when we bought our first house, we did think we were going to stay there for, you know, three to five years. And we did end up staying there for three years. So we didn't completely fail. Right. Um, yeah. We, we didn't we, we didn't buy that house saying, okay, we're going to live here forever. Right. We did not. Yeah, it was not our forever home decision. Right. That's. Probably people in their 20s, you should not make that decision because it's extremely unlikely so, and, you're going to live there for 40 years. And to add to that, we bought like a, str- a true starter home. It was like literally half of what the bank actually approved me for. And we didn't even factor Brett into the equation. I got approved by myself because we weren't married yet. And it, so like it was something I could easily afford on my own without somebody else in the equation and it was a true starter home in the sense that it wasn't at the top of our budget. We just wanted a cheaper place to live than rent because we were in an area where it was a lot cheaper to buy a home. Mm-hmm. And it was somewhere that we could, you know, be happy for three to five years at, right. in, a, in an appreciating market so we could sell it and, right. you know, get some money. That, that was it. one of our criteria when we were buying in that at that time in our lives was, is this, what is the odds that this market's going to appreciate? Or at least not decrease in value. And, like, you know, we tried to, like, make that work for us. So knowing that we could get out of this house in, like, a five-year time span kind of a deal. Right. Our second house, we thought we were going to stay there longer. And then we changed our minds. (laughs) I think is the easiest way to sum that up. Um, Things in our lives changed. Careers changed. Locations changed. And... Um, we realized, you know, we are still young and it wasn't meant to be our forever home. Right. So Because, yeah, purchase number two, right, was much better than purchase number one. From a physical location standpoint, we were just much closer to things that we wanted to be close to. Yes. Uh, we found ourselves in, in house number one. We were just driving 20 minutes to get anywhere we wanted to go ever. Um, it was a newer house. Number one was a newer house, but it was a worse house. Um, you know, we swear that it did not have insulation in the walls in the bedroom or the bedroom closet. Um, yeah, so sometimes people will say, like, oh, newer homes have to be built up to this certain code, and they're just automatically going to be better than older homes. And so our first house was built in 2003. Our second house was built in 1986. And the second house built in 1986 was so much better insulated. The windows were better. The windows like, were better. It had natural, like it was, they they paid attention to detail of where the sun was going to be pointing, right, during the day. So we got a lot of solar gain. Um, so our energy bills were way less. We didn't lose as much uh, heat in the winter or, or lose as much cool in the in the summer, right? It was just a, just a better house overall. The layout was a little bit better. Um, so better materials. So yeah. just because things are a little bit older, that doesn't mean they're any better. And we're finding, especially in the Midwest market, a lot of new houses that are being built are just being thrown up and are super cheap, quick and easy builds. And they cut a lot of corners in that market. Right? And, and it's we knew, fascinating. We knew so, I mean, if you get your house built by a builder that you contract yourself, you can customize it. But it's interesting because these houses go up and they're at a low price point. And let me tell you, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. 
And the reason they're at these low price points is because it's like, if you are like, oh, can I customize this or can I... And I actually have an exa- a real-life example from this happening. If you even say, oh, can I get a different microwave? They will, if you want a better microwave, they will upcharge you for the entire kitchen package because that's how they make their money. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you can't just swap out to, like, a slightly better microwave or a slightly better stove. It's like, maybe that would be, like, a $100 difference, you know? And they're like, no, you have to go to the next tier kitchen, which is, like, a $6,000 difference. So whenever you find yourself in these, like, package home buying deals... It, it's something to be cautious of. That doesn't mean you're not going to get a well-built house. I'm sure there's a lot of areas where you still do get a well-built house, but it's not the same as like some of the, you know, our house that was built in 86 was like a craftsman built home, very high quality, right? Mm-hmm. And it was not that much more expensive than our first house, which was right. key. Like our mortgage stayed the same. Right. So... Yeah. I don't know. It, it, our market's a little bit different than the rest of the country, right? I have a friend that lives in North Carolina also where the market is crazy. Um, so you can't you can't go see a house in the morning and then it still be available in the afternoon kind of a market, right, when he bought his house just a couple of years ago. Um, and the market's still not as bad as that, but it's still pretty bad. Um, and, you know, he got, he got into a house that was, like, on the market for a couple days or, like, a week or something like that where, like, it didn't get snatched up right away. And lo and behold, now that he's been at for a while, well, after it rains there, the whole front yard turns into a, turns into a swamp because he's in one of the lower points in the neighborhood. So all the rainwater just kind of drains like toward his house. And so, but what do you do when you're in a market like that, right? You don't have enough time to do the full analysis. You don't buy a house. Uh, <laughs> that's, that is one so, option. Yeah. And that's something I actually wanted to talk about in this podcast. Buying a house should not be an emotional decision. And when you find yourself caught up in a market where you're like, everything's flying off the shelves. I need to get into something now. And we've all been there. So Brett and I have bought two homes for ourselves and we've bought two rental properties. And there have been times where going through that process, we had competing offers. And it is very easy to get emotional and be like, well, I want this house. I don't care what it takes. And to put in, you know, a really high offer that's not justified potentially it's over the appraisal value, which means you have to bring more money to the table to even get in the house. And I can tell you right now that that's just not a good idea. Because if you're like, oh, well, this area is going to continue appreciating forever, let re- let me remind you of AOL.com <laughs> um, and the, the stock that was going to appreciate forever, right? So I'm not saying that it's going to burst tomorrow, or maybe you will see steady growth. But When you find yourself getting into this like emotional battle where you're, you know, I've even heard of markets that are so hot that people won't even go and physically see a house. They'll just see it on Zillow and they'll be like, well, it got posted at, you know, 6 p.m. tonight and I'm not going to have a chance to see it. So I better get an offer in tonight. And that's a bad idea. Like that's. And so when you find yourself in that type of market and you're getting that emotional, then you just need to take a step back and look at it logically. So every time we've bought a house, before we even get into a multiple offer situation, we have a discussion around, like, what do we think the price of this home should be? And no matter what, we won't go over that number. And if we lose the house, then it wasn't meant to be. Right. And there's there's always more new good deals that come on the market all the time, right? And there's always more houses. Right. Well, that's right. Every day there's people put more stuff out there. It's an ever-changing market, but it's so hard to like 
look at that long-term strategy when you're like, okay, I'm looking stuff up right now. Here's all the houses that are available on the map. I've narrowed down my criteria, and these are the three we're going to go after, right? It's a point-in-time analysis. But, like, a week from now, that whole map's going to change. Exactly. Right? And a month from now, like, none of those things will be on the map anymore, and it'll be a whole new set of data. So. Well, and it's interesting because you might walk into a house and be like, well, this is just the house. I love it. It's perfect for me. And I actually had a friend in, you know, we used to live in Michigan, and our market there was really hot as well for a while. And I remember he would look at a house, and there was one house that he absolutely loved, and he was, like, devastated because an all-cash buyer came in. And, I mean, nobody's going to turn down an all-cash buyer, right? That's, right. like, mm-hmm. the wild, an- or, you know, the rare animal that you don't the, even believe, the, the unicorn. unicorn. And... um And he was, like, devastated, and then, you know, he kept looking, and I I remember he missed out on, like, two or three houses before he ended up in the house he's in now, and he absolutely loves his house now. So, like, it could be this sad story about, like, he fell in love with all these houses and he never got any of them, but he was patient, he knew what his top dollar was, he was working with a wonderful agent, and I know because I recommended her, Um, and, you know, he, ultimately, he got into a house that he's super happy with, so... I think the moral of that story is, like, truly, it can feel like, oh, well, all these houses are flying off the shelf. If I don't get into something right now, I'm never going to get a house in this area. But you will. The market will cool eventually. It always does. And, it, you know, it might take a couple of years, but it will slow down. Or, or even if it doesn't slow down for a long stretch, like I know, especially up north, it'll slow down every winter. People mm-hmm. just don't do as many transactions in the winter. And you will be able to get into something. So don't rush it. Take your time. You know, do the right thing. Get the right thing for your for your money. And otherwise, you're probably going to be part of that 68% that has a regret. Because right. when you make a decision this big in like three hours instead of taking a week, you know, it it shows. But that pre-analysis is, the, is half the battle, right? Because whatever is right for you, whatever is in your in your window... It doesn't matter what's on the market. That doesn't change your numbers, right? right? It doesn't it doesn't change like what you can afford or what you should be buying or where you know where you should be buying. It, it only affects right your your you know, the tugs on your heartstring, right? Yeah, and um I actually am glad you brought up where you should be buying because I remember I used to watch House Hunters or no, love it and love it or list it. And the guy on there would always get so mad when people were like, we want to stay in our current neighborhood and our current school district. And I remember watching that and being like, yeah, I don't understand these people. Like, he's only taking them 20 minutes away. Like, what's the big deal? Well, once you live somewhere, you realize that a lot of us spend most of our time in, like, the few-mile radius surrounding our homes. Five-mile radius to your house, you spend, like, 80% of your life in that zone. Right. So if you take somebody 20 minutes outside of that even here in Orlando, which has terrible traffic, might get you outside of that 20-minute or that five-mile radius. So you're talking about sending your kids to a different school. You're not going to see your neighbors anymore. And all these sorts of things, you know, it really, location, I would say, is actually very important. So, you know, I wouldn't compromise on price, but I also wouldn't compromise on the location you want to be in. Because if it's being close to family, and this is speaking from experience, 20 minutes away means you're not just dropping in for dinner anymore, right? right. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other the other thing about that show is uh, he would also just increase the budget, put them in the area they wanted to be in, 
like yeah, increase their budget like fifty thousand dollars, and then be like, oh my gosh, we love it. This is everything we've ever wanted. And then they take that, and he wins, right? But then right. those those people are getting in over their head. They they did what they were supposed to do. They set their max criteria. He pushed outside the max criteria, and he wins because of the glam factor, right? right? And that's 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 not unrealistic to what happens with a lot of people. Is they just like they see something, you know? You go with your realtor, and you're like, you know, you know, we're probably it'll be hard to find what you're looking for to meet all your criteria. So if we like bump it up and like look at a more expensive house, then there you go. Now we're like fitting more in the ballpark. Um, and then at the same time, they also get a bigger cut of the commission, right? Right. And <laughs> I would say that's when you need to not bump up your number, but instead revisit your criteria. So if your criteria is, you know, we want a four-bedroom house because there's, you know, two adults, two children, and then we want to have, like, an office space or something, can you be creative with, you know, building that office space into the living room or... Um, basement. Basement, we, we especially a, in Michigan. Yeah, if, we had a friend that, like, made an awesome office out of his basement that he did, you know, mostly himself. But. Right. So you could do that. Um, and, and I know down south here, like, there are no basements. So you do have to be a little bit more creative. But, you know, a lot of times now you find these houses that might have, you know, a dining room in the kitchen and a separate dining room. Well, do you really need two dining rooms? Or could you, <laughs> like, have an office set up in there? So I think getting creative with the space can solve a lot of problems, which, so maybe I am team Hillary, you know? Yeah, I'm, I, I have, I struggle now for looking at houses and I, there's somewhere that has a formal dining room because I just, I just think that's such a waste of space in my personal opinion, but I just, I just never know what else to do with that space because I'm not going to go buy a whole nother dining room table that goes in there. No. Right. We never would. So <laughs> we've been really lucky that we've never actually bought a house that had a formal dining room. We never had to do that. But Mm -hmm. yeah, so some of these like spaces, and I know it's not uncommon to have like a family room and a living room too. I know my house growing up as a kid had that. And it was always kind of a challenge of like, what do you do with both of those spaces? So there's there's ways to get creative with the space that you have. So maybe, you know, and I know in Chicago, it's actually super common to look at like one bedroom or two bedroom with a den because essentially you get that second carved out space, mm-hmm. but it just doesn't have a closet in it. So you can always put, you know, a closet in if you need it. But I know like you have a coworker who did that and actually saved a lot of money because it wasn't classified as a like full. It's a second bedroom. but yeah, and then all of your, your taxes just drop dramatically or your rent drops dramatically, depending on what it is, right? Because it's not a two bedroom and the two the two bedrooms literally double in price. Right. From, right. So, yeah, all these things are just things to consider when you're buying a house because I actually think most people... So when I was reading this article about millennials having regrets, a lot of it was financial regrets. Like, they were house poor. They bought too much bang for their buck, and then they felt like they were trapped in it and they couldn't get out of it. Um, Another big thing I saw is when millennials were going through the home buying process, they were, you know, not putting very much money down and... Their broker told them it was fine. You know, they could they could do less down. Now, we did this with our first house, and we had a PMI. And then we we knew we were getting that, so we paid down our house faster to get that to drop off. Right, and a, P- a PMI is private mortgage insurance. It's a penalty, basically, that you have to pay for not ponying up, you know, 20% uh, down payment. Right. And that it's very difficult to make that drop off, um, more difficult than we thought it was going to be. We thought, oh, we hit this number and then it will disappear. And you, know, you have to chase it down. And some, you know, depending on the market, some places 
it's very difficult, even more difficult than we had to go through to get it off. Um, and so if you can avoid that situation in the first place, that is the recommended approach. Right. And then the other thing about the closing process that a lot of millennials don't know is there are closing costs. So it's easy to think, okay, I have this, you know, $200,000 house, I need $40,000 down. And so you come to the table and you bring $40,000 and it is not enough. You really need like 45,000 or 50,000 or whatever that number is. And that's because closing costs are typically between one to 3% of the home value. Right, it's, you just basically have to pay all these people to like make buying the house happen. Right, right? So. and another thing that a lot of millennials regretted is not realizing how expensive houses are to maintain. So as landlords, when we evaluate a property, we build in how much expenses are going to be per year to get the furnace serviced or to replace you know, things that break or to plan for a new roof someday. And we take this out of the rent and we save it, right? Mm -hmm. But most people buying a house, especially when they come in at the top of their budget, they are not thinking about what's going to happen when the furnace goes out. And then it does. (laughs) And then what do you do? Yeah, we have maintenance on all of our rental properties. There's, of course, there's maintenance on your house and nobody ever thinks of that that as a line item. Right. Right. That's exactly right. And it's expensive. So that, again, that is typically it's a large percentage. That is typically one to three percent of your home value. So if you buy that two hundred thousand dollar house, you're looking at what is that two to six thousand dollars per year, mm-hmm. forever. Um, and I, you know, I say that because it's important to know. And people might come at me and say, "Oh no, I've lived somewhere for three years or five years, and I've had no expenses." Your roof is going to be ten to fifteen thousand dollars, probably twenty. Maybe yeah. twenty, right? Yeah. And so you might not be feeling that two thousand, two to six thousand dollars every year, but when you have a year where you have to replace your furnace or your roof, or you know you get termites or anything that goes wrong, or appliances, or appliances, yeah. or um, plumbing, right? I mean, toilets start leaking. There's all sorts of things that happen. Right. So, and the maintenance, right? That that is anything that your insurance is not going to cover which most of the time you don't really want to use insurance for, unless it's like a big catastrophic issue, you probably don't want to go down that road because then your insurance is going to be higher every year. Well, for, and like, insurance forever. doesn't cover regular wear and tear. So no. even even staining your deck, which you're supposed to do every year, but I don't know who does that. <laughs> um, so, But even every other year, it's going to cost you a couple hundred bucks every time you need to stain your deck. And if you have a fence, then you need to potentially worry about maintaining that. If you don't have a fence, maybe you want one, right? All these things cost money. Insurance doesn't cover any of that. That's just out of your pocket. So, mm-hmm. um, I, or, it's, or if people are paying for lawn services, it's super common, right? Right. I mean, that's just above and beyond, like lawn service, snow removal, um, HOA fees, you know, depending on that situation, there's just hidden expenses that maybe you weren't planning on when you bought the house in the first place. Right. Um, you should know about that before you buy that house if you are going <laughs> to run into that situation. But, um, but yeah, all, all of the yeah, all the maintenance repairs, all the if my furnace goes out, insurance isn't covering that or anything like that. So basically, unless like a flood happens or a tree falls through your roof or something like that, you're not going to insurance for any of those expenses. Right, it's all coming out of your pocket. And so, since we've owned rental properties, I mean, it could be as simple as needing a new kitchen faucet because it's leaking and creating plumbing issues. That's going to be $100. It could be 
Um, we've had several light switches where the like switch itself, the electronics in it break. So the, all the wiring in the house is good, but you have to get a new switch in, which if you do it yourself can be pretty inexpensive. But if you pay for somebody to come out and do it, that's going to be a couple hundred bucks. Uh, and then, you know, you go anywhere towards heating or cooling. That all needs to be serviced every single year. That's going to be a couple hundred dollars if nothing's wrong, Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, so you can get away with service fees that are, like, under 100 Changing the lights. Yeah, any electrician coming to your house, it's going to be, like, uh, $70. It, depend, it depends on which trade it is. The trades, in general, are getting way more expensive just for service calls in general. So regardless of, yeah, the light switch itself costs, like, $0.18 cents or whatever, right? So, yeah, you can go change it yourself. It'll take five minutes, and uh, you just turn off the power, unhook the other one, hook the other one back up, you're done, right? Um, but, but yeah, how just many for them people to come to actually house, pay for it or do that themselves? Oh, no, I'm sure most people don't, right? They're just like, thing is wrong, thing is broken, need person to fix thing. Right. right? And then it's just like, okay, I guess it's like 70 bucks, right? That's just right. the way it is because I don't want to touch anything that has to do with electrical wires. But, I mean, that's that's just the way it is. Plumbing, too, right? We had somebody come because we had like a, a leak in our um, the, the hookup for our washer and dryer or washer. And, right, just having to come out to the house just to come, like, check things out. If it wasn't, like, a free, like, assessment or whatever, right, or free uh, inspection. Um, yeah, just, you know, coming out to do that work is, is 70 bucks plus all the parts plus hourly time at that point, right? So, yeah, you're looking at, like, 140 bucks probably to get something replaced like that. Yeah, so I bring these up because these are common things that happen all the time. And it's very easy, like, a couple hundred here, a couple hundred there. And so I bring it up because in Mar- like. We always get the question, well, it's still better to buy a house, right? I'm not making these rent payments anymore. And sure, it can be, as long as you're doing a lot of this yourself or you're learning the skills. But if you're paying for all of this and the numbers are close, it's probably better to rent. Yeah. I mean, having a house is expensive, right? That's the number one thing that I've learned is I just after we got both of our houses, we just kept pouring money into stuff. Mm-hmm. Whether it did or didn't need to be fixed, like... We, got, we set up a garden in our backyard, right? So you got all the dirt and you get all the plants and you get all this, the foundation. We bought like railroad ties to like four men like make a garden, right? And then we just, you know, sold the house. Right. <laughs> Maintaining the fence is something we didn't do, but we could have done. Um, you know, spraying for bugs around the yard. So we got to buy like, we bought like fox pee or whatever, right? To spray around so we didn't have like skunks and stuff. Because we our lived backyard. right by a field. Yeah, yeah, we were by like a field. So yeah, we didn't want like prairie dogs or like skunks or other things like crawling into our yard. Um... Um, but yeah, yeah, termites and other bug sprays and like mosquitoes or whatever, if you're going to like buy things at the store to like, you know, abate those things from happening at your house, there's just more stuff. Like you just fill your garage with like all the stuff to take care of your house. Like when we got rid of, yeah, when we got moved out of that house, our garage was just full of all of this crap that was just like maintenance for the house. I just ended up leaving half of it there because like. What am I going to do with it now, right? We moved halfway across the country and somebody's going to use the stuff when they move in anyway. So Exactly. So, you know, just kind of bringing up these things because honestly, that's a lot of times why people have regrets is they buy a house. They think it's going to be just like apartment living. And then you go on vacation, you come home and something sprung a leak and there you have a flood, right? Mm-hmm. And th- this stuff happens and then people... It, it's, it just creates more stress in your life. Now, that's not to say these things don't happen in rentals, but 
it can it can feel very frustrating when you buy something and especially because when you see it in the walkthrough that is like the best the house can possibly look right because the sellers are trying to make it as appealing as possible so then when you get into it and you're like oh this is broken or that's broken or this needs to be fixed it can feel very discouraging so we bring this up not to discourage you but to kind of like warn you that this is normal and this is going to happen and to prepare yourself for it so When you buy a house, make sure you have enough money to put the down payment down, to put the closing costs down, and to have a well-funded emergency fund because things are going to come up and happen. And knowing that you can take care of it just removes the stress from the equation. Right. And, and, I mean, emergency or not, you're going to buy hedge trimmers and you're going to buy a ladder and you're going to buy, you know, things to work on your car or whatever, right? You need a lot more stuff to go along with the house that isn't just furniture. A lot of people are just like, I want to buy this house and I need to fill it with furniture. Well, you need to, there's a yard too, right? And the yard stuff is equally as expensive as all the furniture stuff is too. Right. And so... Right. You getting into a house just comes with a lot of baggage associated with it. So, I mean, the the moral of the story is the rent to buy equation is not as easy as people think it is. Or I guess it just has a lot more baggage along with it. It's not just, is my mortgage cheaper than my rent? Well, and I think a huge component is if you're renting a space that's a thousand square feet and you buy a house that's two thousand square feet, you're going, like Brett said, you're going to buy all this extra furniture and all this stuff to fill it. So another huge way to make this comparison is to focus on buying equivalent spaces. Because if you buy a house that's like a more reasonable size, right, it's cheaper than a house that's bigger. So that's kind of back to, I guess, the beginning where we were talking about buying our first home was more of a starter home and it was very intentional. Our second home we purchased was actually smaller than our first home was. And we didn't want more space because what do you do with it? Right. We already had one and a half whole rooms that we like hardly ever accessed, right? It just had, they just had stuff in them, again, that we never accessed because we never went in there. And so when we, you know, we moved, we were just like, okay, we don't need more space, right? I don't need more places to put stuff. And that included a whole basement of stuff that we like hardly ever got. Um, Now we have a, we did move into a house that had a finished basement. And so that was more of a livable space. So we spent more time in that area, but then spent like no time in one of the bedrooms upstairs, right? Right. And so now we've downsized even further into a thousand square foot, two bedroom apartment. And we still hardly ever go into that second bedroom. Right. So (laughs) it's really interesting when you start noticing where you actually spend most of your time and really thinking about how much space you need. And I bet that will help you find the motivation to buy a smaller, more affordable house. And with that, you don't have the stress of stretching yourself just to make a mortgage payment, let alone all these other things we've brought up that cost money with yeah. the house. And that is a trend that you know people started noticing a couple years ago when they started first talking about like the, what I was like called, like the McMansion thing, right? Or whatever. Mm-hmm. Just people not wanting to get into like 300 to $500,000, you know, 3,000 square foot houses especially as a starter home for no reason, right? Because it's just like, they just feel it's too much house. It's too expensive to heat. Um, They don't have all the stuff to fill it up anyway, right? Starting out. So just that market in general is just kind of dwindling. Right. And I'm sure the prices will drop and somebody will get back into that and this whole cycle will repeat itself. But um, so, so to wrap this episode up before we keep going on a terrible tangent about McMansions, <laughs> let's let's just do some key lessons. So, Brett, I'll put you on the spot here. If you, since we've bought, you know, a couple homes, what is the biggest piece of advice that you would give yourself for your third home purchase? Uh, 
get that robot lawnmower. Like, best purchase ever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, mine, I would say to v- put it in a spreadsheet and view it more as an investment, making sure that the numbers would make sense if I wanted to buy it for that reason and not just buy a house because I'm like, oh, this is a good area and whatever, and not and not really focus on the numbers. Because I think for me, if I could if I could convince myself like this is a a solid home that an investor would purchase, that just means that in the event that I don't end up staying forever, uh, as I would, you know, imagine, it would be easier to sell someday. So to buy a house that is truly attractive to a large pool of people, maybe. Right, because a person buying their house is basically playing the role of investor and renter, right? They just have to pay both sides of the equation. Right. If, if, and, and for people that are property managers listening to this, right, you own, uh, you own, or if you own the property or if you're managing the property, you own all the expenses. You own that furnace repair and you own all that stuff that the tenant doesn't have to have responsibility for, doesn't have to pay for. Hey, the furnace goes out and you're renting, you just call somebody on the phone. They come fix it and you don't have to pay for anything. Great. Um, but right now you're the now you have to pay all the mortgage stuff and you have to pay for all the expenses and damages. You're just right, you're just eating both sides of that equation. And property taxes. And the taxes. So yeah. and I will say something, it is very easy to go to a county website and look up property taxes. When you buy a house, if that house has not been sold in many years, they reassess it at that point and your taxes will go up. So instead of just looking at taxes on the property that you are looking at buying, I strongly recommend you find a house nearby that sold more recently and look up what their taxes are. At about the same square footage. At about or, or the, the same, same property property size. value. Yeah. So yeah. if you know if you're looking at buying a two hundred thousand dollar house, try to find a neighbor that recently bought into that price range and look up what their taxes are because it would not surprise me if you looked at that and said, oh my goodness, they went up 25 or 30 percent. That is not abnormal. That is not uncommon. And it is something that a lot of people don't realize until they start paying their mortgage and they're like, my payment is $1,300 a month. My rent was $1,300 a month. Look, I'm coming out ahead. And then the next year they get hit with an adjustment on their escrow fund because there wasn't enough in there to pay the taxes. And all of a sudden, your payment goes up to fifteen hundred dollars, and that can be a horrible, huge surprise. So, mm-hmm. all right, I think we covered everything. If you have any questions, or if you're in the home buying process and you want to bounce some ideas off me, feel free to email me. I will drop all of my contact information in, and I would love to help answer any questions you might have. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Money in the Bank. Make sure to subscribe to us on the iTunes or Stitcher app so that you get weekly alerts every time we post a podcast. Or if you want, you can visit my website, moneyinthebankpodcast.com. And if you want to reach out with any questions or further comments, please email me at angie at moneyinthebankpodcast.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Money in the Bank.